0: questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie Anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. How are you? Just checking in. How are you doing? Um, This week, so far, because I film these if you don't know, on Mondays, so far this week things have been good. I feel like I'm checking things off my list. It's so bizarre to me. I mean, I know the psychology behind it, which is kind of the irony with what I do, but I know why I feel better when I'm like accomplishing things and checking things off my list because it gives me this sense of like uh, success, fulfillment, and it continues to keep me motivated, right? Because I'm like, look at all this stuff I'm doing. But every time I have a good day where I like get things accomplished, I feel good. And then I notice like as the week progresses, if I don't continue checking things off, I start to feel worse. And I know why that's happening, but it's always still shocking to me. So just know that because I know better doesn't mean I do better or that I always apply everything I know. Because I'm a human too, right? Um but yeah, so far today has been really great. And you guys have great questions. There are a ton to get through. It's funny I feel like I mean not all the time, but most weeks I feel like there is a theme. And the theme this week is a mix between attachment and trauma. There's quite a few attachment-based questions, which I found really interesting, and we'll dig into those, and then a lot of things, you know, how that applies or connects with trauma. So let's dig into it. But anyways, just check in with yourself. I know I'm checking in with you, but I want you to check in with yourself. Like, how are you feeling? What's going on? Is everything okay? Uh, Sometimes just taking a minute to see how we're really doing and being honest with ourselves can make all the difference. So check in. Okay. Okay. Let's move into question number one. And the question says Hi, Katie, how does a therapist feel when a patient gets mad at them in session? This is a great question. Nothing threatening, or, threatening or personal, but things like copying an attitude, getting sarcastic, eye rolling, or sternly disagreeing with something that the therapist thinks. And there was a comment after this says, "Why does it make my therapist happy for me to get angry with them?" My therapist would say something that felt really insensitive to me, and then when I question her about it, and uh, or I question her about how what she said made me ang- feel angry and patronized, it seems to make her happy. And she's like, "Let's talk more about that." That's what she would say when all they wanted to do was punch her in the middle of her face. I would never do that, by the way. This person says, I totally get it. And then another question on top of that says, what do you do when a client's opinion is a discrimi- is discrimination against an identity that you hold? All wonderful questions. <clears throat> so let's dig into that first question, like copying an attitude, getting sarcastic. That happens all the time. And they are defense mechanisms. So Usually it, to me as a therapist, and it's probably why that other person said their therapist seems kind of happy about it, which she should probably work on because that is really like invalidating, but it is helpful information when we get a strong reaction like that, like really disagreeing or copying an attitude or getting sarcastic or any of those things, it tells me that I've gotten close to something that feels threatening or I have uh, tiptoed into a land that is emotionally charged for some reason, right? It's a very sensitive area. Excuse me. Now, you might say, well, I don't really think that's true. Like, it, it's not, it wasn't that sensitive of a topic. Y- you probably just aren't conscious of why it was, it gave you such a response or a reaction. Because oftentimes we're not really fully aware of the the true are all the connections i guess not the true connection but the the full uh the full story of how everything is connected in our brain and in our body and the way that we react but something about that triggered something in you and as a therapist i get excited about that because that means i'm on to something but i'm going to have to figure out a, a softer uh, easier way to kind of get there does that make sense it's like i have to kind of find another way in but I'm very curious about this. It's like a, re- a strong reaction as a therapist is is usually uh, information that tells us we need to continue to move in that direction, but maybe we need to find another access point because this one is, is full of defense mechanisms. Spoilers, almost all of them are full of defense mechanisms, but sometimes you can find a sneaky way in. You know, I've talked about how like um, a lot of times in therapy, it's like I'm trying to break into someone's house. And I don't mean that literally, I mean it figuratively, like as if getting into your head and getting to better understand you, it's like you have a locked up house full of defense mechanisms, right? We've got all these security systems and the protocols in place. And as a therapist, I'm trying to to get close to the house without setting anything off. And then I'm trying to like see if that door is open, if that window is open. I'm trying to find a way in. And sometimes we trigger an alarm, which is what happened. You, When you get mad, you, a therapist has triggered an alarm. And so... I feel excited about it, which sounds so bad. And I don't mean it that I'm excited you're angry. I am excited about the fact that we have stumbled upon something that is is kind of upsetting and then we can dig into it. And I know that sounds really weird, but that's that's like being a therapist, I guess. And <clears throat> I hope that helps explain the second question where the person said, why would they be happy for you to get angry at them? Now your therapist should work on the way that they respond to it because the way that I would usually respond is something like that seems to be upsetting that was not my intention um are you able to talk a little bit more about what made you upset you know so it's like kind of the let's talk more about it without being so kind of patronizing or or making you more angry right because i want i want to make sure that you know that i acknowledge that it's upsetting because the reaction and the emotions are still really real but I'm, I'm wanting to dig more in and you might be uncomfortable. And so I acknowledge, I usually apologize. Like that was not my intention. I'm, I'm sorry that I made you upset. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what was so upsetting? You know, it's like, again, it's like helpful to learn how to communicate and express ourselves and tell people that we're in relationships with, you know, exactly why or, or how that made us so upset. Does that make sense? And then um, the last portion of this question says, what do you do when a client's opinion is like discriminatory or like against an identity that I hold? And the truth about it is that I do nothing. I usually seek to understand their perspective. Everybody's entitled to their own perspective and therapy is not a place for judgment. However, if I do think that, I mean, for instance, let's say that I have someone who's homophobic in my office and that's something I I clearly don't agree with and I think is very ignorant and just very wrong. Um, I, my, Their opinion is their own and my opinion is my own. And my opinion honestly has no place in my office, but I might, if that seemed to be an issue or I felt like they were full of a lot of hatred or anger just in general, I would want to dig into that. And I would challenge those thoughts or beliefs a little bit, little by little, you know, creeping in so I don't scare them away. And I know some people might think, well, wouldn't you just refer them out if I couldn't do it without judging them. If I couldn't do it with a, with a therapeutic stance, yes, I would. However, I I kind of see it as a, as a, an opportunity to learn together, right? Because hate is, is born out of something bigger. It's not just homophobia, right? It's not just, um, the LGBTQ plus community that is upsetting them. I'd assume it's a lot more than that. And I would want, I'd be really curious about where that's coming from, how that was taught or where they learned it. Um, Yeah. And kind of dig into it that way, I guess. So I would see it as an opportunity to kind of learn together and hopefully make someone see the error in their ways. Again, that's not always the goal because it depends on how it's tied into what we're working on, you know, as therapist and client. But that happens sometimes. And even, you know, politically, nobody knows where I stand politically. And that's by design because everybody has different beliefs and different thoughts. And I know that's not the same as like a discriminatory or hateful, you know, like that kind of a thing, but I'm just saying that therapy is not a place for any of that. Therapy is a place to seek to understand and to find better ways to cope and to manage the symptoms and to interact with people. So yeah, that's, that's how I would do it. If, as long as I've never, I mean, knock on wood, I've never had to refer a patient out for having a completely different opinion than mine. Like that was kind of discriminatory. And maybe it's because I've worked primarily in the Los Angeles area and people there are very free to be you and me is what I like to call it, where it's like, you do you, I'll do me. And it doesn't really matter. Nobody, luckily I haven't come across anyone with any, you know, homophobic or racist or sexist agendas or views. I've never seen that. Um, but I would, I would like to think that I could keep my shit together, be professional and help them better understand where that hate's coming from. But Yeah those are just my thoughts. I hope that that's helpful. Let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hi, Katie, what are the things that can cause us to have attachment issues? Remember I said the theme this week is attachment other than abuse or neglect from our primary caregiver. Can toxic friendships and having been bullied as a child and teenager cause us to get overly attached to older female authority figures like teachers, therapists, etc.? how do we know if our attachment to a person comes from past trauma or if it's actual attraction slash love? How can we differentiate between platonic and romantic love? Can having been bullied as a child and teenager cause a person to have difficulty feeling romantic attraction towards someone's the same age as them and almost only feel romantic attraction towards older people? Or is that caused by something else? This is very interesting. And lastly, how can we heal from whatever is causing this upset in our relationships? Thanks for all you do. I appreciate you and your podcast very much. Oh, wonderful. I'm happy to be here for you. Okay. There's comments below this, but I really want to dig into this first because there's a lot of questions within this one question. So <clears throat> the truth about this is there, there's a lot of answers. First of all, uh, bullying or... Um, I'm trying toxic friendships. I was like, what was the other part? Toxic friendships or being bullied as a child and teenager can cause trauma, which can cause, I wouldn't call it necessarily attachment issues because if 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 you guys aren't aware, attachment it occurs within the first year to maybe, I mean, it, we know it occurs within the first year of our life, but also I'd say that like the first five years are very pivotal. And that's when we attach to a primary caregiver. Usually it's one, oftentimes it's the mother, but it could be the father, or an aunt, or a nanny, or anybody like that who comes when we cry and feeds us when we're hungry, changes us, all that stuff. Um, we form attachment. And knowing that someone will come when we cry and can support us in the way that we need is how we build a healthy or what we would call secure attachment. Okay. So being bullied as a child and a teenager, I do not believe would directly affect our attachment. It could affect the way that we interact with the world and how safe we feel other people are, which would lead me to what I believe. So if your primary caregivers were good, if like growing up, you feel like your parents were there for you, you still feel like they are, um, maybe you're still really close to them, then I wouldn't connect you're overly attached to older female authority figures to that. Although I am suspicious of it. And if, if you were in session with me, I'd ask you a bunch of questions about your mom and how you feel about your mom and how emotionally available she was to you. Because if you feel like you weren't abused or neglected, that doesn't mean that there wasn't emotional neglect, meaning your mom could have been kind of of the old guard of like, you know, um, the stuff it down, suck it up, buttercup kind of mentality, instead of like allowing you to cry and, and letting you know that it's okay to feel sad and let you know you're, you're supported and all of that. Um, so that could be where this is coming from, but so I'm just putting that out there that I would be curious about that. And I'd have questions just to, to be able to rule that out or rule it in. Right. And then I have questions about what the bullying and toxic friendships were like for you and who came to your aid? Because there's a huge component of like what I would call our protector in those situations when we feel threatened or when we're bullied or traumatized, we can have someone swoop in and save us, which could have been like a a teacher therapist, someone like that. And so we may hold them in high regard and feel this attachment. Like we need them in our lives because they they protect us. And so I'd be curious about how that played out for you and who, who came to your aid? Because I feel like it's in one of those explanations that, that we're, we're getting these symptoms. Does that make sense? This was in one of those things. And then the question, how do we know if our attachment to a person comes from past trauma or if it's actual attraction or love? That can be kind of tricky to tease out. Now, the best way to know is to see if there's patterns. Now, I know this can be kind of hard to do on our own, but it's something we can definitely more easily do in therapy is identify relational patterns. So if um, if we're thinking it's attachment-based, and let's say it was because our mom wasn't there for us like we needed, do we find ourselves wanting to date older women or be in friendships or other relationships with older people? Do we find ourselves... Um, maybe even repeating that pattern, finding older people who are not emotionally available. Um, for some reason, we we get comfortable in those types of dynamics or what you could call like a family dance. We're comfortable with that dance. We know all the steps, all the moves. It's easy, even though it's really toxic and bad for us, right? We don't like it. We don't even like the music. It's terrible. But we go back into these same types of relationships and recreate it because it feels comfortable. Maybe it's all we know and change can be scary. And so we, and also there's something to the fact like our subconscious mind is trying to give us another opportunity to fix those relationships. And so by engaging in a very similar relationship, it's like, we're giving ourselves one more chance to try to run it through and make it positive. Uh, spoilers, we we don't, it's just, that's what causes us to feel shitty about is we're back in and we're like, Ugh. um. but anyway, so if you can notice patterns to your relationships. Like, are they always people who are unavailable? Are they always people who remind us of someone? Are there certain traits? Um, Yeah, that that will tell you a little bit about where it's coming from. Um, And the actual attraction or love, another way, another key to kind of know that is that actual attraction and love happens slowly over time. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to hear that. They're like, love at first sight. I'm such a romantic. Oh my God, you should, that you could fall in love with someone right away. That is false. You can fall in love with the idea of someone. You can fall in love with um, the excitement of a new relationship and the the, like Twitter patient, as I call it, like the butterflies in the stomach that kind of comes along with that. We can get excited. We can love that feeling, the newness. Ooh, so exciting. I love that. We all love that but you can't actually love someone that you don't fully know and i believe it takes us some time to get to know one another now people would say oh you can know someone within 6 months or a year i there's no real set time but like if we were just friends and chatting non-therapeutic advice i would say you should be dating someone for at least a year and a half to two years before you decide if you even like want to marry them or know them well. Now people might disagree and be like, but I dated my husband for six months and my wife and we got married and it's perfect. Good for you. That's fine. That's just my opinion. That's not, you know, again, there's no like data to support it, but I I believe we can hide our, uh, our call it hiding our crazy, which maybe you'd think, Katie, that's not very therapeutic either, but we all have our upsets, right? Our, our hangups, our patterns, our uh, defense mechanisms, our our faults. We all have faults and we can hide those for a while. And I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that my partner for life knows how to deal with me when I'm not my best, because I'm easy to deal with when I'm my best. We're all easy to deal with when we're our best, but I want him to see me when I'm not at my best and make sure he can like hang in that space with me. And so Anyway, that's, that is what I would talk about. Cause I think attachment issues come on quick. When we think we've fallen in quote unquote love, because we want to act quick. We want to get that person. We want to be around them all the time. And if you find that like urge and that impulse to act quickly and get into a, a, a deep relationship very fast, I would like 99% of the time be like, that's attachment based or, you know, or that's bait. That's like toxic friendship stuff. That's pulling into your other parts of your life. But if we're able to get to know each other and enjoy it, and you can still get excited. I'm not saying you can't be excited. I'm just saying if we feel this urge to like, uh, I want to move in with them. I love them. We're moving really, really quick. And maybe we've only been on like two dates or three dates. I would encourage you to just pump the brakes a little bit, you know, talk with them more, get to know them more, ask more questions, get to meet some of their friends, ask about past relationships. If you want to know that stuff, you know, give yourself an opportunity to, to really get to know them. And that's where true attraction and love come out of. That's what it's born through versus this rush. So I hope that kind of helps you tease that out. Um, And then how can we differentiate between platonic and romantic love? I think, I mean, do you want to make out with them or not? I mean, that's the difference to me. I know people would say, well, that's, you know, pe- some people don't want like sexual components to relationships. Well, do you, how do you think of them? Like, I love my friends and I would do anything for them, but the love that I have for them and the love I have for Sean is different because I want to make out with Sean. I want to hug him. I want him near me all the time. I I created a life with him. My friendships are like my support systems outside of that. I cannot talk to my friends for a couple of weeks and it'll be fine. But Sean, I mean, I check in with him all the time and I, I, mean, I see him every day, let's be honest. But I think romantic love is is more, it, it, it has a sexual component. I feel, I mean, you guys can disagree with that and that's fair. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that if you don't agree, but I mean, that's like who becomes a friend and who do you date? I don't, you know, I don't want to make out with my friends. <laughs> I know that might be too simplistic, but that's just how I, how I tease that out. Okay. Um, Okay. I think we answered all of those questions. So we'll move on to the question on the, the end of this. Oh, and then it says, and lastly, sorry, one more. <clears throat> it says, and lastly, how can we heal from whatever is causing this upset in our relationships? I think the, the main component is just acknowledging, like recognizing what it is, right? If we can tease out what's causing, if we can find the patterns, then we can fight against the patterns or change the patterns. I was doing an interview this morning where we were talking about like family dances and how we break these patterns. And let's imagine the example that I gave is like, let's imagine that my family only knows the Macarena. That's the family dance we do. Meaning that, you know, um, maybe I'm the scapegoat child. So my family blames me for all the upset. And my brother's the hero child. They're like, he's so amazing. Look at how good he's doing. And then my other sister, which I don't have, by the way, it's just me, and my brother, but my other sister, you know, is a placator. She tries to like, make sure everybody's okay. And we all have these roles, meaning we all know our steps to this dance that we do. And that's why I was like the Macarena. It's kind of fun, you know, da, 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 da. I can imagine myself doing it. So that's the dance that my family does. And, you know, my mom plays her role. My dad plays his role. Everybody goes round and round. Now, if I don't recognize that I'm doing the Macarena and I keep getting into relationships with other people who do the Macarena, and I'm always playing the same goddamn role, right? I'm always the scapegoat. I always get blamed for everything, or I always have to be perfect. I have to be the hero child or the hero person, or... I'm the placator. I have to keep everybody happy. I'm always making everybody else happy while I feel terrible, right? If we don't recognize that, that's what therapy and in, like internal work that we do, why it's so great is because we have to, we can't change what we don't understand or recognize. So once we recognize that you're doing the Macarena and you look over at someone doing the polka and you're like, that looks much healthier. And your therapist is like, that is much healthier. You should learn how to do the polka. But the thing that, why it's hard to, to switch out of these patterns and change is because at first we don't know those steps. I don't know how to polka. I only know how to macarena. So at first I'm going to misstep. I'm going to step on people's toes. I'm going to maybe twist my ankle. I'm going to feel awkward. It's going to be super uncomfortable, right? All those things we're going to feel when we try to break familial patterns, when we try to get out of what we were raised to, think is normal. Cause it's all we knew. Right. And part of the therapy process. And the reason I was like a therapist can help you know, like identify some of those patterns. And that's part of this healing is like, sometimes a therapist can be like, do you hear that music? That's the music your family listens to. It's the only music they dance to, but do you hear this other music? Let's maybe try that music. And we can feel really uncomfortable moving into that new dance hall with different steps, but that's where the change goes you know, comes and where the healing happens is when we realize, Hey, just cause I learned those steps when I was young, doesn't mean I have to keep doing them at whatever age I am now, 25, 35, 55, whatever it, we don't have to keep doing that stupid dance, frankly, cause we hate it. It's uncomfortable. It's well, it might not even be uncomfortable. But we, we don't like it. It's not serving us. And it's actually become like a toxic environment. And so recognizing it, <clears throat> deciding to change the patterns that we, how we engage in relationships and then the third component and part of what I think you'll have to, the person who asked questions to talk about being bullied and having toxic relationships, it'll be some of that trauma healing, talking about it. Um, maybe we do some somatic experiencing or EMDR to kind of process through all the trauma we've sustained so that we can feel okay. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that said, Hey Katie, I've recently been having a really bad attachment with female teachers and actors that I find comfort in who I imagine being there for me when I'm struggling. I've never known where it's come from, but my parents split when I was seven and therefore I had over 11 nannies who lived with us as my mom was always working. Wow, that is definitely where that came from. Um, could this have been the cause of the problem, even my mom was there for me as I never had a chance to connect with them as they always need to leave after a year? Yes. Again, primary caregivers can mean a lot of things. If your mom was there, but then it sounds like she worked a lot, so I would even wonder how much she was there for you when you were first growing up, and then all through your developmental years, people were in and out, and you could never count on them to stay around. And if the nannies were the ones that really did most of the heavy lifting of your caretaking, meaning you know uh, the feeding and the the making sure your clothes were clean and making sure you're up and ready for school and getting you there and take picking you up and checking in on homework and all that stuff, if they were the ones that were doing most of that, then it's like you could never attach because every year there was a new one. That's a lot. 100% could have come from that. Um, So yes, that just to answer your question, yes, that could do it. And I think that, that that's probably why you attach to female teachers and actors and find comfort because, no one was ever consistently there throughout your life to offer the comfort that you needed. And so you're seeking it out. So doing some of the inner child work and the healing in therapy will be really beneficial. Um, might even want to pick up that book, the emotionally absent mother. I think that could be really beneficial for you too. And I have it in my Amazon store. You can go to amazon.com forward slash store forward slash Katie Morton. I think oh, it's in the description. You can click the link. Okay. And then another person says to add on, how can I move forward? after the change in counselor, I've tried everything that I know, such as the (laughs) J-bomb, meaning journaling. I gave her a parting gift and talked about it with my current counselor as well as my psychiatrist. I realized that it was the security and comfort that I missed from her. You've mentioned before that we cannot rely on others to give us this, and we have to rely on ourselves to provide ourselves with these. Correct. But I just feel so stuck because of this attachment. My suicidal thoughts are way too active because of this. I don't like it. Thanks for all you do, or thanks for all you've done for the community. Of course, I'm happy to do it. So when you're switching counselors, part of it's like um grieving it. And I think um I think my my advice in this one would be to to grieve it and to figure out what it was about that therapist or counselor that gave you that comfort and security and sharing that with your new counselor. Telling them about the things that felt so right with that one and what you found such comfort in and then being a detective and figuring out other ways that we can get that because that person's, again, like, you know, you said, I've mentioned, you can't rely on others. We can't, but it is helpful to figure out what we were getting from her so we can now give it to ourselves. If we don't know what it is, then we can't even ask our new therapist to do it or be able to do it for ourselves. We have to kind of figure out what that comfort was, what that understanding, like where did that come from? Are there certain things that maybe your counselor now can do to help you transition? Are there certain things you can start doing at home that help you feel a little bit more soothed? Because my guess is we just feel like the rug was kind of pulled out from underneath us or like that warm blanket Blanket that was keeping us safe has been ripped off of us, and we need to find a, another way to do it. And yes, I would prefer it to be 100% from us, but I'm okay if about 20% is coming from your therapist. We just have to find that balance, and we have to understand a little bit more about how how we got those messages from that that, that first counselor. Does that make sense? Like, how did we feel so comforted and soothed and if we can figure out that security and comfort that she offered and find other ways to mimic that stuff, I think, I think we'll be on the right path. So that would be the work that I would encourage you to do. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, can you talk about avoidant attachment style? Remember I said, attachment's a big theme or avoidant personality. What's the difference? There's actually quite a big difference. I'll get into that. Stemming from childhood trauma, question mark, I thought I was doing fine looking at others going through periods of abusive relationships, self-destructive behaviors, alcohol, et cetera, as I didn't engage in any unhealthy behavior. Well, our unhealthy behavior isn't always so outward, just FYI. Well, it looks like I also didn't engage in life, avoiding people and things if, it wasn't, if I wasn't in the right mood. Avoidance is my go-to coping mechanism, which is hard to resist because it feels so relatively harmless. How can I change it? How do I motivate myself to change because I'm afraid that I'll resort to something worse? In which areas of one's life um, do the avoidance symptoms manifest? For example, can procrastination stem from it as well? Okay, so great questions. Um, avoidant attachment style, again, obviously develops in early childhood. And it tends to occur in children who don't receive... I guess, emotionally sensitive responses from their caregivers. Meaning that, you know, when we cry, they're not like, Oh, it's okay. or Are you okay? Or if you fell down and stub, you know, like scraped your knee, they're not like, Oh, you got a boo-boo and clean it up. And, and, you know, it's okay to cry. And they rub your back and wipe your tears and help you feel okay. Get you back up on your feet, you know, put some clean clothes on you and out you go. Right. That we didn't really have that, the, the sensitive response that we needed. And So when we feel in distress, it could have been rough, like brush it off and you got this or, or avoid it like ignoring us completely. And so children with an avoidant attachment style often become very independent, both physically and emotionally. So if we I've had patients that are like, you can't count on anyone else. They don't want anybody to help them. They can really have a tough time letting other people help them. Even if they actually need the help, it's really hard to reach out. There's a whole slew of things that can happen. Um, And also we can get into self-destructive behaviors and stuff like the person here is worried about. But usually it's more of the like, I do it myself emotionally, physically independent. I don't don't tell anybody how I feel. I don't share with anyone what's going on with me because it's too risky, right? Because they may not be sensitive and I can't handle another, uh, not invalidation, but another person ignoring me or not being there for me. I can't handle that, that pain. And so, so that's avoidant detachment style. I just wanted to kind of explain what that is and how it can feel. Okay. Now avoidant personality disorder is, is a little bit different because it, the difference between any kind of mental illness or mental disorder, whatever you want to call them, and a personality disorder is that personality disorders are more pervasive. Meaning like avoidant attachment style may show up in certain ways, but, but not in all ways. Now, Meaning that like, okay, in avoidant attachment style, we can go to work and we interact like with people and we seem pretty fine. And we just don't have any close friends because we don't want people to really get to know us because that feels a little scary, right? Avoidant personality disorder, be a little deeper than that. It would mean that nobody feels like they know us at all. We probably don't even strike up general conversations with anybody. We can kind of go almost unnoticed. I know that sounds kind of strange, but that's what, you know, that's kind of how it can play out that makes sense so it's a little more pervasive a little more deeper and it just they you know we just completely if we have the personality disorder we completely avoid intimate or social contact with others so we we're kind of like loners And I don't say that as any kind of put down or judgment. It's just a different way to differentiate the attachment style from the personality disorder. Now one can lead into another. I would say that that would be very common. That would be my hypothesis. Again, I haven't read like a ton of research. I don't specialize in like avoidant personality disorder by any means, but, um, but yeah, so that, that's a little bit, um, a little bit different. And The avoidant people who have avoidant personality disorder also, unlike those with the avoidant attachment style is that those with the personality disorder can, you know, have feelings of extreme, like extreme social inhibition. Like we cannot uh, like socially interact at all. We can feel really inadequate around other people and have an intense sensitivity to any kind of negative criticism. So that's why engaging with anybody or being in any kind of relationship is going to be super uncomfortable for us. Does that make sense? Now we might not, you know, we might not feel that way if we like have the, just the attachment style, not the personality disorder. Okay. So that's how they're a little bit different. Um, I hope that that helps. If you need more clarification, let me know. And this can stem from childhood trauma. Yes. Um, the neglect and abuse obviously means that our parents, or our primary caregiver did not respond to us in a, a sensitive manner. Um, okay. So that's all the, the, the first chunks of those questions. Now, the second part is kind of that, like this avoidance has been your go-to and it's, even though it seems kind of harmless, it, it's really not. Isolation is no joke. Loneliness is no joke. Those, as we've seen from COVID and all of 2020 slash part of 2021 is that it really, is, is hard on us. We're not, we're meant to be social creatures. I know people with avoidant personality disorder are like, absolutely not. But I would push back and even say like, then why are you online talking to us? It seems like you may be like a little bit of interaction just on your own terms where it feels safer because of that extreme fear and feelings of inadequacy and stuff like that. But anyways, um, so it's really not harmless. It just isn't it's just different. It's just a different kind of harm that we're doing to ourselves. So how do we change it? The number one treatment really for, for attachment-based or avoidant personality, either of those, is really talk therapy with preferably a trauma specialist or attachment-based therapist. I'd even argue someone who does dialectical behavior therapy or DBT would be a great fit because what's going to be important here is under is beginning to understand where this is coming from. That'll be like kind of one of the goals of this therapy would be like to dig in and figure out, is it it an attachment style? Is it avoidant personality disorder? Where did it come from? Is it trauma-based? You know, were my parents just never around for me or were they really harsh to me? Uh, Understanding that's going to be, you know, one of the main goals, but another part of it's going to be challenging it, you know, putting yourself out there safely, little by little learning about what comes up for you um, and working to heal, essentially doing some of that inner child work to heal the wounded child in you, regardless of what, if it's attachment style or the personality disorder, healing that child and doing some of the inner child work. So they feel they meaning you, but this younger version of you that they feel seen and accepted and that people are happy that they're there. One of the major caregiver, like primary caregiver messages that we need to receive as children is, I'm so glad you're here. And it's just really important for us to be able to hear that and to, to feel it and, and soak it up. Um, because when our parents aren't around or when they don't respond in a loving, caring fashion, we can start to think that nobody wants us here. And so we, we withdraw, obviously, right? It'd be safer. It's safer to withdraw than to to hear that message. And so coming up with certain words and phrases, some good mother good caregiver messages that we wanted to receive that we didn't, um, will help you heal. will help you move through it, push past it. And some of it's going to be super uncomfortable. We're going to have to put ourselves out there in social situations where someone could put us down and we could feel bad, but we have to in therapy, be prepared for that. It's like building up some of your resilience, some of the, the good mother messages or good father messages you can give to yourself. Um, and, and going out and giving it a go, right? You know, um, we can prepare, we can hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so we'll have some tools in place to to get us through. And then it says, how do I motivate myself to change? Because I'm afraid I'll resort to something worse. I think it's doing it in therapy and just acknowledging, maybe making a list of the reasons that you don't like being on your own anymore, that this avoidance or this uh, disconnect that we have from other people, how it's affected you, you know, Uh, hopefully that will keep you motivated. And then if we have some tools to help us, if it doesn't go well, that should prevent us from going and resorting to something else Um, and letting your therapist know that you're, you know, you don't want to get into like self-destructive behaviors or alcohol or drugs or, you know, bad relationships, things like that. Just being aware is often enough. And, okay. So in procrastination, avoidance can find its way into a lot of parts of our life. And I would say procrastination is one of the things that it can come off of because think about it, we're avoiding things. And procrastinators tend to procrastinate because either they don't feel motivated could be ADHD driven, but, um, work better under pressure. Like we need that deadline to push us to do it. Or it could be fear of failure. We're almost like sabotaging ourselves by procrastinating, or it could be that we, you know, just like to put things off because actually acknowledging it and moving forward it feels too intrusive, right? We're avoidant. And to actually do it means we have to, maybe it's a group project and so we're procrastinating because we're like, I have to call that person or I have to get that information. I can't tell you how many of my um, patients and even viewers online have told me that they put off doing work um, because part of it was like they had to reach out to someone in another sec like section of their office and they don't know them, and they didn't, so they'd put it off until they were like forced by deadline or potential you know, ramifications that that would harm them, and so then they would do it. But it was really difficult. So I guess recognizing where it comes for you, but my guess is it is part of those avoidance symptoms. Okay, now, there was a question that was a follow up, says, yes, I have a follow- up. I am avoidant. When I start to get close to someone, especially when dating, I put them at arm's length. Yeah, you puffer fish, and you protect yourself. But I'm also interested in them, but I don't know how to get past it. I think it possibly stems from being scared to be in a relationship or sexual parts of the relationship. It could be, but I don't know how to get past it. I brought it up with, with, I've brought it up with my therapist, but we haven't dug deep into it yet. Yeah, I'd want to dig into it because I'm curious about uh, the sex. Is sex something you're interested in or not? Where does that come from? What's been your past experience with, with sexual relationships? Have you had an intimate relationship that was abusive or or not? Have you been sexually abused as a child? I'd want to figure out that component and then maybe even go down the road of like, what happens if someone does get to know you and then it doesn't work out? you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because I've had a lot of patients over the years like, well, I can't handle that. I couldn't, I couldn't cope my, you know, I get fall into depression. I'm afraid it's too dangerous. You know, I'd be like, well, what's too dangerous and try to figure it out. Like, okay. So, so let's say that you, someone did get to know you. Okay. What would that feel like? Okay. You know, and walking it through. Okay. Play out the worst case scenario. Oh, they break up with me. It's terrible. Okay. Play out the best case scenario. Oh, we fall in love and get married or whatever. Okay. What's the most likely scenario here? And just figuring that out a little bit, digging into it. Um, Yeah. And then obviously recognizing where the avoidance comes from. If it's attachment style, are there good mother messages or good father messages we can give to ourselves? Um, Yeah. If it comes from that, that could be it. But then there's also kind of the component of, of needing to be a little uncomfortable in order to change that pattern. Like I was talking about with a previous question about the family dance. Know that while you let people in and don't keep them at arm's length. It's going to be hard and it's going to feel really uncomfortable, but it does get better. This comfort goes away after a little bit at the beginning. I'd probably say, I mean, it's a relationship, so it depends on how often you see the person, but I'd say about a month will feel super uncomfortable, maybe two months, but it slowly gets easier and better. And again, it's not a dump everything and let them get to know you all right away, but it's a slow grow and you'll feel like, oh, I want to pull back, but I'd encourage you to lean in, continue, you know, um, it's kind of going against doing a little opposite action, going against that urge to, to puffer fish and push people back. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And that question says, hi, Katie. Can a singular, quote unquote, small event, such as your dad kicking you as a kid, be considered a trauma? 100%. And that's not small, but okay. What if it's combined with a bunch of small, again, the word small, small things happening occasionally over many years, like my dad slapping me, my parents yelling at me, telling me I'm stupid, worthless. That's emotional abuse and physical abuse. They said slash did it in anger and in the middle of an argument. So I feel like it's sort of justified. It's never justified. And I don't think they really meant it did they tell you that? Cause they said it and they need to take it. They need to make right what happened. They say and act better now. And it all seems like such small things compared to what other people consider trauma. Hmm. Such judgment, uh, like a car accident, a fire coming back from war. Those, those like big T little T's. Okay. Um, However, I have some symptoms of post-trauma that seem to have gotten worse over time, of course. Like my dad walked past my room a few weeks ago and I literally shivered. I'm also very withdrawn and cold towards him as a knee-jerk reaction. And I've also experienced depression in the past without a clear trigger. But my parents cu- uh, came up a lot when I was talking to my psychiatrist about it, of course. More recently, I've also been thinking about it more often and having repeated memories of the event. Can or So, can a small thing be considered a trauma? Thank you so much for all that you do. That's not a small thing. What you've been experiencing is repeated trauma. I would argue you have complex PTSD, which is why you're having some, you know, PTSD-like symptoms. Um, Yeah, those are not small events. And there's a reason that you shivered when your dad walked by because he's your abuser in many cases, and it's very threatening to have him around. Now, I'm glad that they're doing better now, but there's some healing and some repairing that we need to do from what happened before, right? They're like, the, I mean, the, again, the emotional abuse of calling you stupid and worthless, that ugh, people don't talk enough about emotional abuse. People are like, oh, I didn't get hit or, oh, I wasn't sexually abused. It does not matter. It's it's painful and it's wounding and it's traumatic. And then being slapped and kicked, all of those are, are traumas. And I know, unfortunately, people. A lot of people talk about trauma like it's a big event, like a car crash or uh, went to war, or whatever, a fire. The things that this person mentioned, um, those are traumas, but so are the things that you went through. And we talk when I've talked with my uh, my good friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, who's a psychiatrist or a psychologist rather and a trauma specialist. She talks about big T traumas, like one trauma, like the car accident, boom, is enough to have uh, send us into PTSD response and have symptoms of it. And she explains it. I actually have this in my book that's coming out that's uh, actually available for pre-order now, if you wanted to get it. Um, It's called Traumatized. It's on Amazon. I'll, I'll be linking out to it soon and doing a formal announcement. But Um, Alexa wrote a little uh, blurb for me about big T's and little T's and big T's are those one, those big events, this one thing happened and it was so much. So I was like standing, she talks about it like waves, like you're standing in the sand and the ocean on the very edge of it. And this huge wave comes and knocks you out and washes you out to shore. It's so much. Right. And so you have PTSD, but then there's a bunch of little T traumas, which are just, I don't even want to like to call them little T's just they're a bunch of smaller waves that hit us. Like, let's say they hit us right above the knee and it kind of knocks us out of our footing. We try to catch our footing. And then before we can even get our feet back in the sand, another one comes. Okay. And we, then we're trying and we're scrambling we know we're going down and another wave hits and boom, we have PTSD. And so I want you to know that, that little or big, they're all trauma. They're all abuse. It's all warranted. There's a reason that you're feeling the symptoms that you're feeling. And so of course it's gotten worse over time because it's gone untreated and it can lead to symptoms of PTSD, but also like depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, things like that. And so I would really um, encourage you to get a referral to see a therapist. You can talk with them more long form, not because a psychiatrist, if your psychiatrist does talk therapy also, then stick with that. But often they're just med management. It's a pretty quick conversation but talk to somebody. Let's figure this out because yes, what happened to you is a trauma. And yes, it warrants help. And it's not, they're not small things. They're, they're painful, hurtful things that happened to you. And I'm so sorry that they did. Okay. Let's move on to question number five says hi katie i feel like i struggle to feel any feelings towards another person it's like i don't care about anybody and there's no emotional reaction when i see someone like i'd meet up with a friend but it wouldn't matter if i saw them or i didn't it's not like i don't care about them because i do but i seem to be so far away from my emotions that there's no reaction i'm able to cry when i'm by myself but now or yeah i'm able to cry when i'm by myself now but when i heard someone in my family almost died there was no reaction Not because I was shocked, but because I didn't feel anything. Am I just emotionally cold or is there something wrong with me? Neither of those things. That's not correct at all. And how can I start to work against it? I feel like I'm just frozen and my heart is made of ice when I actually know that I can have feelings or it does say something about the relationships I have with people. I think it was in the comments of this one that somebody pretty much said what I'm going to say, which is you're not cold. There's nothing wrong with you. It's most likely a response of a couple of things. Number one, it could be a trauma response because trauma tells us that when, when we're traumatized, uh, our, we, we respond with feeling like our environment or uh, other people in our lives are not safe. And so it's not safe for us to be us. We have to hide it, stuff it deep, pretend we're okay, right? Because if we share, we could be hurt again. And we're just trying to grapple with the fact that we were already wounded. Does that make sense? So that can be a very normal response to trauma as well. Then there's the depression component where depression, we can feel really numb. And a lot of times I think this is just a symptom of overwhelm. Like our depression is so overwhelming to our system that we just shut down. It's almost like a, like on the spectrum of dissociation where we're like, I just can't connect to life. Oh, it's too much. Ah, my brain pulls the rib cord a little bit and I feel a little disconnected from any emotion, any sensation, any feeling about anything. Right, And so you'd have to know what it is for you. um, Whether you think it's like depression-based, trauma-based or where, why it happened, you know, when it started, it might be helpful to kind of track back to like when you noticed this. Um, The fact that you can cry when you're by yourself tells me that there's something makes me, I'm very suspicious. It makes it sound like it might be more trauma-based because being out with people or maybe social phobia or social anxiety-based because being out with people it's not okay. So again, that level of vulnerability, even just feeling anything or being present with people when you're out isn't okay because maybe we've been shown in the past, hence like past trauma that it's not okay. Or maybe we feel so anxious when we're out, we just shut down. I don't know. But you're definitely not. You're you're not frozen. Your heart is not made of ice. You're just disconnected, and you're protecting yourself in that way. And we just have to kind of be curious about why. Again, no judgments around it. Uh, no need to shit talk ourselves. Let's just be curious. Track it back. Consider it. Um, and then that that can tell us like then how we have to heal or what we need to work on so that we can start to kind of thaw out. (laughs) Um, there's a question on top of this where someone says my stepmom passed over a year ago from dementia and I had a little emotion when she passed more grateful that she was not suffering anymore. That is interesting. And there's a lot of the relief after someone passes away sometimes when it's long, like when dementia or something like that, but now my mom is still upset and I feel like I have to fake being upset and really missing her for my mom. Why would you need to, that sounds a little, um, enmeshed to me where someone else's emotions need to become ours. And I'm just going to push back at that and say, I think you might not have very healthy boundaries with your mom because I would assume that she would be okay with you not crying and being as upset as she is, or she should be because you can still support her and say, yeah, mom, I know it's so hard and I'm sorry you feel that way. And I'm sorry that it's so rough. And you know, you can still empathize and sympathize with someone, but that doesn't mean you have to feel it too. So I'm just going to put that, push that back. says, am I just a heartless person? Nope, you're not everybody processes things at a different rate. And the fact that you, set, like you felt like she wasn't suffering anymore, so you're kind of grateful, your grief process was very different than your mother's, which is fine because we're different people. We're separate. We have separate feelings, separate processes, and it's been a year. And that might be, you know, that might've been enough time for you. So I hope this makes sense. It totally does. But again, I'm going to push back on that enmeshment and those boundaries. Now we have an, one more question at the end of this, as I experienced something very similar to this, except it happened so suddenly. One day, a year and a half ago or so, like I just woke up and nothing. It felt like I was in a bubble or something. I didn't feel anything. I've been struggling to cope because I've used to be such an emotional person. It's really hard to live like this. I also don't have a clue what can fix this emotional numbness. I too have experienced a lot of aggression from my parents sprinkled throughout my life. Could that really be the cause of this? Just seems so sudden. I love this question because I think, um, the suddenness could feel very shocking obviously. Cause it's like, wait, what happened? Why did I shut down? I, I feel like it's a buildup and we reached our capacity. It's almost like people in, I mean, we've all seen those. I, I don't even know if this is a good example, but just bear with me. They're, there are like weight limit capacities or a limited number of people on like patios. Right. Cause they're like hanging out from a building and you can't put too many people on it. Cause then it could collapse. I know this sounds scary and terrible, but that's how I see our ability to uh, withstand trauma and upset and hang in there and still feel it all and still be there, right? Just go steady. But when we reach our capacity and we get over capacity, we can't anymore. And I feel like that day you reached your capacity, something must've happened or the buildup got to be too much and we just shut down. Poof. And that's what happened. You woke up and nothing. Because your brain was like, "This is too much. I've reached my limit. Rip cord." Wah! And part of dissociation, and that's why I call it a spectrum, is like that disconnect, that numbness. I believe is part of that. It's like I can't handle this. I can't maintain. I'm out of resilience. I'm running on empty. And there's too much. My my, you know, my parents have been super aggressive. I've been traumatized repeatedly by them throughout my life. And I'm really, you know, I'm struggling. I feel super upset. And so I feel like that is what happened. And. Going back to what I said initially, I think the same kind of ways to heal applies figuring out what, where it comes from and, you know, where, when it, for you, it's a little bit easier, but healing those traumas will help you as, as you puffer fish should help you pull your spines back in and reconnect a little bit Um, because you can go back to feeling things just not safe right now. It's, it's just a protective mechanism. I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number six. It says, hey, Katie, I've just recently started talking about my self-harm urges and self-harm in therapy, but I'm struggling to really get into it. How common is it to downplay how often the urges are? Oh my God, I always multiply by two or three. Let's just be honest. It's almost like the same with alcoholics. They always say if they tell you they drink once a week, times it by three. I do that with my self injury and eating disorder patients, where they're like, "Oh, I have some thoughts." I'm like, "You mean you know, like half your day?" And they're like, "Yeah." <laughs> I'm like, "You mean ninety percent of your day?" Because if they'll agree to half, I'm like, "How far are we going?" You know, it's oh, it's super common to downplay. It says or how recently I've engaged in those types of behaviors. Yes, common to downplay that as well. How do I let myself talk about it in depth and in total truth? Um, this is a great question, and I think. A lot of it's trust-based because finding the right therapist and feeling safe to talk about it takes some time. And you've only recently started talking about it. Um, I find, at least in my experience, you guys let me know, but with my patients, usually the urges are easier to talk about than the actual acts because it can feel just a little less... I don't know if it's vulnerability or if it's like less intrusive, but I find that my patients will tell me more about their urges before they tell me how often they've actually engaged or be honest about relapses and and what took place during that relapse. Um, so that would be where I would start is just trying to maybe write it out, maybe practice saying it out loud. Sometimes when we just started talking about something, it's hard to even get the words out and not like go blank or shut down. And so you might want to write out a couple bullet points, practice saying it out loud, and maybe even just bring something in that you read from. Those are all easy ways to kind of circumvent our defense mechanism of shutting down and not saying anything because... It could just help us push through. All we have to do is just read. And so maybe that's something you try to do um, to kind of help you get out that message so that you feel like they truly understand what's really going on. But again, give yourself time trusting and talking about this. I know it's hard. You're doing great. I'm proud of you for bringing it up and for talking about it in therapy. So let's just find some other ways to continue sharing. But again, you're doing a wonderful job. Now there was a comment at the end of this that as an add-on, what if you haven't self-harmed if you haven't self-harmed in a long time, but you were getting the urge to hurt yourself again? And I haven't done anything, but uh, but the urge is keep coming back, getting stronger and harder to fight. Tell your therapist something is going on. Uh, just because we overcome something, people ask us all the time, like, oh, can I really recover from insert thing they're worried about. And the the short answer is yes, of course you can. But just like a common cold, just because I was able to get over it once doesn't mean when I'm really stressed and not taking care of my body that it won't come back, that I can't catch a cold again. Do you know what I mean? And I think so often we think that once we've overcome something that we don't ever have to do any upkeep that it's gone forever. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Unfortunately, we have to keep taking care of ourselves. We have a mental health that needs tending to, just like we have a physical health that needs tending to. And so um, if the urges are coming back, talk to somebody. I'm sure something's going on, whether it's extra stress in your life or some other kind of trigger. What's that trigger? Can we figure it out? Is there something we can do to better manage it? Can we talk to other people about it? Do we have a support system in place? Um, if not, again, obviously therapy. But. Let somebody know so that we don't slip back into it and do it again, Um, especially because it says the urges keep coming back and getting stronger. We got to reach out. We need some more support. And that's also very normal. Just know it's, like I said, it's just like catching that cold again. We want to take care of ourselves so that it doesn't come back. Okay, now this last uh, question on top of this says, my daughter self-harmed was cutting for years before letting her father and I know her journey through mental illness has been a long and difficult one. But the past four years, she's been doing much better with support. Yay! However, between the year of lockdown due to COVID, she lives alone, Ooh, my, my people who live alone had the hardest time, and recent deaths in our family this year, I get the sense that she's not doing so well. I keep looking for any evidence of her cutting, but I don't want my hypervigilance to be triggering to her. How do I encourage her to reach out more for support from us, i.e. her therapist, support group, father, myself, siblings, <clears throat> without triggering her feelings of failure, which has happened in the past, um, as her self-esteem is fragile. Now, first of all, I'm glad that she was doing better, but COVID hit us all really hard. And I guess my, my, the best way for you to help her is just to check in. We don't need to look for self-injury uh, evidence. Um, first of all, if, if she is doing it, most of my patients are super good at hiding it. And you would never know if they don't live with you. Um, but just let her know you're there. Mentioning to her next time you see her or talk to her, be like, man, this last year and a half has been pretty fucking terrible. How are you doing? You know, you've seemed a little off or a little down lately. Just know that I'm here. Know that we're happy to help. Or if you want to come over and stay for a while or whatever you're comfortable with reaching out and just letting her know you're there. Again, we cannot make people get better. We cannot make people want to seek out help or want to see a therapist. Or we can't make any of them do any of those things, but we can let them know that we're there for a resource. If they need any help, we're here. Just call, just come over, you know, whatever your relationship or however close she is, uh, you know, distance from you, you can say those things and just check in and then check in. You know, um, I know as a parent, we want to fix, we want to make it better, but unfortunately, in situations like this, the best thing we can do is just continually check in and let her know that they're, you know, you're there when she needs and when she's ready. Now, the final little bit on this, on another question says, another question about still having urges, should they let their therapist know? 100% yes. Therapists can only help us with what we tell them about. If we don't tell them, they don't even know that it's happening or they can't even do anything to help us in general, right? Because they're not going to know what to, to offer because they, they don't even know what's going on, right? Okay. Let's move on to question number 7. It says, "Hey yo, Katie. Hello, hello. Hey yo. Um how do I know if I need a break from therapy or if I should change my therapist?" Good question. I've been with my therapist for over a year and while in the beginning I could draw a lot from our discussions, I feel like the pa- past few times have been very repetitive and there's nothing really new or helpful. I feel like everything she tells me, she's told me many times before already. I just feel a bit stuck. And every time I try to go more in depth than usual, I find that she doesn't really understand what I'm trying to convey. Do you think I should take a break altogether or just try to look for another therapist? I also think that one reason I might've not considered changing therapists properly yet is because I dread needing to explain everything all over again. And that all the things I discuss with my old therapist, I'll repeat with this new one. Is there any way to get over that dread? Okay. So the best way to tell if you need a break from therapy or if you should change therapists is do you feel safe and connected to this therapist and like you can tell them things? Like you feel open and you feel like they they can meet you there, right? They get it. They listen. They offer helpful advice, which it sounds like for the most part, this one does. But when you try to move into more like deeper topics, here's what I would do. I would write down some of the things that you want to talk about, the more in-depth things that maybe, maybe we're, you know, we're not communicating in the same way that they like to to listen or hear it. You know what I mean? Sometimes we're like miscommunicating where it's like, sh- sh- nobody's getting each other. Um, maybe write it down and try again. But if you find that, she just never understands what you're trying to get across. Like there's always these miscommunications. I would bring it up. And the reason that I push people to do this is because therapy is a great place to practice extra communication. Often we don't want to tell people how we feel. We don't want to express what's happening. It's easier just to cut and run, but I don't want us doing that here. I want us to practice communicating. So I want you to tell your therapist, Hey, you know, I feel like I'm not really making any progress. And when I try to dig into deeper topics, I don't feel like you, you understand what I'm saying, And let's talk about that. Let's give that a go. Now, if if you try that, let's say your therapist is like, "Uh uh-huh, and then nothing changes and it feels exactly the same and you're trying to do your work, you're trying to push, then we could look for another therapist. And I do want to mention that we all dread having to explain everything all over again, but I'm here to tell you that you don't actually have to do that. You can sign a release from your old therapist to talk to your new therapist. You have to sign like papers on each side, then they'll get on the phone and they'll share information and you won't have to repeat. And then you can also ask and sign a release again, or it might be one release if they offer like documents and conversations, but you c- they can release your uh, file. They'll make a copy or scan it and send it and give that over to your new therapist. So he'll have your, all your files. And if they're, you know, worthwhile, the therapist will read through at least the last six months of session notes. That's what I usually try to do just to give me an idea. I usually read the intake information and then the last like six months of, of session notes. And so that will help save you time. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as I have a question along these lines. My therapist died about six months ago. I'm so sorry. And at first I didn't want to continue any type of therapy after being with her for over six years. However, after the unexpected death of my brother, um, that same month, having to deal with my other brother's battle with pancreatic cancer, finding a new therapist in order to keep my sanity became a necessity after working through their losses and trauma, I've now found myself in a place where I want to continue with some of the issues that I was working on with my first therapist, but also feeling overwhelmed at the thought of starting all over again and going through and explaining everything. Is there any way my new therapist can get a hold of my records from my old therapist now that she's passed away? Yes, there should be. Um, my old therapist had her own private practice, and I get the sense that I'm just out of luck with this. Any suggestion would be helpful and greatly appreciated. So, when you're a therapist in private practice, you have to put together in your will, like your will and Last Testament, like if you do die, where the documents go, because someone's going to come into your office and all of that is like confidential proprietary information, you know, all that stuff. It's like all HIPAA stuff. So it's all locked up usually. Like I had lock, I have locked filing cabinets. Um, anyways, th- it has to go somewhere. So someone took over her practice and her patience and probably... I I just, sometimes I feel like maybe therapists just aren't prepared with this, but I would call the board that she, where she was licensed. Cause you can look up like in California, for instance, you can look up like, um, California state license of LMFTs and you could find my board and you could ask them, Hey, Katie passed away. Where did her files go? I'd like to, you know, trans get transferred to another therapist. And they'll be able usually to tell you or to um, guide you in the right direction. I'm surprised no one's called you is really what I'm saying. Because for instance, we had this happen, unfortunately, with a psychiatrist that I shared some patients with, uh, this is, oh God, probably like six years ago now. But he went into the doctor for a checkup and had a heart attack. It was very, sa- very sad, very scary. And um, his office staff, cause he had office staff. Now I don't know if she has office staff, his office staff, uh, worked to call all the patients and offer them some referrals. So that was the process. Now, when a therapist passes away, the, the same thing is supposed to happen. So one of my colleagues would take over my files and then they would call my patients and, and see if they wanted to either go with them or someone else. So since it's been six months, I don't know. I might, if she was part of like an office or if there's someone else in that office, if you can find someone else who works in her office, if there was like another name on the door or next door to her, I would call them and try to find out. Unfortunately, because they haven't called you, we're going to have to do a little digging, but it's protocol for us to have someone in line that can take over or call and refer or do something like that, have some kind of assistant or something. Um, And so... You're, I do not believe your records are just gone. We just have to find someone nearby. Like, so I would, again, I just do a little research. I'd call somebody in the same building, ask them about it, leave messages. If you feel okay doing that, like, Hey, I was seeing Dr. So and so, or, you know, this therapist, so-and-so do you know what happened with their files? I'm trying to find a referral and get to see somebody else. Um, Cause usually within the community at the very least, like I know all the people in my office and when one, you know, if one's retiring or something, everybody knows it's like their scuttle button, like who's taking the patients and what are we doing and blah, 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 blah. And so I would assume that they will know that. Okay. That's just a little behind the scenes of how that kind of works. Okay. Um, now going along with this, another question, at least in my brain, it relates. Sorry if it doesn't. How do you know if you should increase the number of sessions while you're, uh, the sessions that you're attending? Like, how do you know if you should switch from bi-weekly sessions to weekly sessions or twice a week? If you don't feel like you're getting better, Now, I know therapy is hard work and sometimes we can feel like we plateaued, but if you feel like you're still drowning in the symptoms and not doing better and it's like it's not enough, like each week you're like, oh, my God, that 50 minutes just goes by so fast. Or even if it's an hour and a half, you know, however long your sessions are, if you're like, I just can't get through everything and I still feel like shit and I feel worse every day and I don't know what to do we need to see somebody more frequently and possibly consider medication. So that those are the things that I would look out for. If you find you're like, we're deteriorating. And I'm not, I'm not saying you have to wait till you feel total, like total shit to see them more often. I'm just saying, if we find ourselves not feeling better and actually feeling a little bit worse, let them know, uh, get into more frequent sessions. Like I went up from once a week to twice a week Uh, when my dad passed away. And then when I was planning Sean and I's wedding and studying for my licensing exam, because I was just overwhelmed and I just was feeling overwhelmed all the time and 50 minutes once a week was just not cutting it. And so I told my therapist and we found another time and poof. So that that's how, you know, is if you just, it's not getting, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Okay, good. Good. Moving on to question number eight says, hi, Katie. Okay. Is it normal that after sessions with my therapist, I spend a lot of time running through conversations in my head? It usually starts with things I say, I may say, or bring up, but I find myself answering for my therapist too. You're playing it out. That's fine. This gets especially bad in the night before sessions. And although when I become aware and conscious of what I'm trying, I'm thinking and try to snap out of it, I still find myself doing it. I know it's pointless because the conversations never really happen and it's not my therapist even answering or reacting to what I'm saying, but I'm finding it kind of infuriating as I don't seem to be able to stop. I feel stupid, creepy, and weird. Sometimes I also think of the things she might ask me, and I go on a long speech in my head of how I intend to answer. I know it's probably something to do with anxiety. It is 100%, but it's just infuriating as I don't know how to stop it. I've only recently started seeing this therapist, and I find it difficult to answer a lot of her questions, usually resulting in saying, I don't know. This makes me even more mad that I seem to be able to think up conversations in my head than completely crumble in sessions. Thank you so much for all your help, Katie. Your content has always been a fantastic resource for me growing up and understanding my mental illness. You seriously are a genuinely perfect example of a good and kind human. That is so sweet. Thank you. I'm so glad that I have could be a helpful resource. Yay. Okay. This is great. Now, great question because it seems to be very common and there were a lot of comments like, yes, me too, me too. And the truth about this is it's definitely anxiety driven. I would argue it's a little uh, part of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, because, well, I mean, it could be just uh, generalized anxiety disorder or OCD, but it's definitely in the anxiety disorder realm. Now, first of all, I would let your therapist know you're doing this. And the reason that I say it is anxiety driven is because it's that it's that like constant worry or the obsession about making therapy work and like having all these answers and constantly it's, it's that replay or the preparing ahead, right? It's all anxiety driven. If you think about it, um, if you disagree, let me know, but I I really believe it is anxiety driven. Now let your therapist know about it and, We're gonna have to try to come up with some ways. I, I, because you've tried to stop and you can't. I don't want to tell you to like try thought stopping techniques because I don't think those are gonna work. But I might encourage you when you find this happening to get up and do a full body shake. Now I know I've been mentioning these a lot, but it really helps with anxiety and it gets some of that anxious energy out. Now if it is OCD, I don't know if it's gonna benefit you as much. But if it is anxiety driven, like from generalized anxiety disorder or something like that, I think that it could. So let's let's give it a try. Again, we're just testing a hypothesis. So get up and do a full body shake just for, you know, 15 seconds, which doesn't sound like very long, but it'll feel like a long time when you're really shaking. I want you to shake from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, out your hands, everything, give everything a good shake. And let me know if that helps you feel better. Cause I think that might stop that racing thoughts and get that energy out. Um, And then here's another thing that I'd like you to try. I'd like you to try, because it sounds like this might be driven on, it's continuing to push it because when we get in session, then we can't answer the questions, right? So are there certain questions that we know our therapist asks? And can we write that down, write down the questions and write down the answers and bring that to session. And when your therapist asks you something and you, you, you know, feel like you can't like you don't know what to say or they ask it when you're like, oh, shit, shit. And you find yourself wanting to shut down be like, no, Katie said to, to write it down. So pull out your paper or your notes on your phone. And I want you to read some of the answers. It might not line up perfectly, but you could even tell your therapist, you know, I, I keep going blank. And not having answers. So I wrote some things down. So to this question, read the question, read the answer. Now, as a therapist, I can tell you, I'd be super stoked about that. I know you might think, well, that's not the question that she asked. I'd be super stoked to get any information. If usually you say, I don't know, because I don't know, isn't really true but I can't articulate it right now is actually what the answer, what's what you mean, right? And so we have to find a way, if you can articulate anything, it's going to be a win. It's going to be better than it would be if we just had to shut down because we don't have any, you know, because we don't know what else to do. And so let's give that a try. So when you find yourself ruminating, these, cause it sounds like pure O OCD where we're like thinking it through. I want you, instead of keeping it in your head, I want you to write it out. I want you to write out some of the questions. I want you to write out some of the answers and I want you to stop after five. I don't want you doing more than five. That's a lot. It's plenty. You're going to be typing all day. So let's do that. And maybe that in and of itself might lessen them a little bit. Again, remember, we're going to let our therapist know about it and then bring those typed up answers to session and see if that helps you get some of that out. Just because I know it's uncomfortable to feel like it's all trapped up inside and, and then we're ruminating and running them through. And hopefully that will give it an outlet and don't forget those full body shakes, but keep me posted. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of potential that places this could be coming from and potential things that could be helpful. Okay. Let's move on to question number nine. And that question is Katie, how do you deal with quote unquote secondhand trauma? Is that even a thing? About two months ago, I witnessed cops having to tell my friend that about her mom and that her brother and son, brother slash son committed suicide. Ever since I've been having nightmares, I feel easily triggered and I'm just struggling with that experience, but I mostly just feel bad because the whole thing isn't really about me and it isn't my grief. How can I deal with all of this without being completely overwhelmed? I love this question because secondhand trauma is a thing and it is a, like affecting you. Sure. What happened isn't about you directly, but there's a lot of things that can be traumatizing to us that don't affect us directly, but it doesn't mean that we aren't emotionally affected. Now you witnessed an overwhelming and traumatizing experience for your friend who you probably love and are super close with that connection to that friend and knowing probably cause she's your friend. I'm sure, you know, that, you know, the brother, you know that he committed suicide and you're probably also close to her mom who had to hear this news also. I think all of that compiled is you experienced a trauma with them. You had a shared trauma. Now, obviously it wasn't your brother or son, so you're not going to be affected in the same way, but you're still affected. And I would just encourage you to change the way you talk to yourself about this, to allow yourself to feel what you need to feel. Because here's the thing, the more quickly when we are traumatized, the more quickly we are able to allow ourselves to feel it, maybe even identifying what those feelings are and and what we're scared about or what we went through and just talking it out as much as possible. The sooner we can do that, the less likely it is that we will walk away with uh, PTSD symptoms. We might have them for a short period, but we can nip them in the bud and we can work our way through it. And we can talk about this. We can shake out. We can express all the things we're worried about or all the thoughts we're having. We can, yeah, work through it. So yes, secondhand trauma is a thing yes, you have a right to feel the grief and the overwhelm. And yes, you, you know, can feel bad and sad. And this, I would, I would encourage you if you have the ability to, to see a therapist or at the very, very least talk to other people in your lives that are, that are safe and you know, it won't upset your friend, but talk to them about it. Tell them about what happened and how you're feeling and what you're experiencing. Get some support that way, because just telling the story sometimes for some of us is enough for a lot of us it isn't but i want you to you know and even talking to your friend about it if you f- you know feel it, that would be helpful again i don't know how you know how you're doing with that or how sh- she's doing with it but i think you know by having that outlet and that friend to talk to who obviously has a different her own different experience or her own grief with it but um you know having that conversation, having someone to talk to about it can be healing also. And they might be looking for someone to talk to too. And that might be helpful for them as well. So just talk about it. Don't stuff it down. It's okay. I don't want any of that negative thought in your head around like uh, that invalidating or minimizing like, well, it wasn't really me. It's not really my grief. Now is not the time for that kind of talk. It's not helpful talk. You were traumatized. You experienced something with people that you loved and it was horrible and you have your own processing to do, allow yourself to do that. I give you full permission. You have every right to feel how you feel. Keep telling yourself that. If you have to rewind back this question and listen to it again, do that. But the sooner we talk about it, the sooner we'll start feeling better. Okay. Finally, question number 10. And this question reads, Hey, Katie, I hope you can answer this for me since I haven't heard anyone else talk about this. Well, here I am. We're doing it. I'm wondering why I was never informed of my diagnosis, even once after years of therapy. I wasn't aware of my diagnosis until I downloaded an app where I can view my health records and was shocked to find gender dysphoria on there. I've never struggled with my gender and have no idea where my therapist at the time got the idea and made that diagnosis. This is very upsetting to me because not only does that make me feel like my therapist wasn't even listening to anything I said, but I'm really uncomfortable knowing the other providers I've seen were probably under the impression that I have gender dysphoria since it's on my chart. Not being informed makes me feel violated in a way. That's what's so bizarre to me is that this is actually the case for every mental health diagnosis I have on my medical records from multiple different therapists that I've seen. I had to watch your video on adjustment disorder when I found the diagnosis on my chart to know what it was. God, that's so fucked up. I'm sorry. Is there a reason no therapist has ever let me know that they're making a diagnosis? It's really quite a shock to me. I hate that I had to discover it myself two plus years after they diagnosed me. Okay. Unfortunately, I have found in my years that a lot of clinicians, meaning all mental health professionals do this and it pisses me off. Um, I find that the best advice I can give all of you out there. Is it after you've seen someone for maybe a month or two, ask them what they're diagnosing you with. Ask if they've put anything in your chart, ask to see your chart. I know that sucks, but unfortunately, like I said, I've learned over the years that people just don't do this. I don't, they, they just put it in a diagnosis down don't talk to the patients about it. I, I honestly think it's a, it's, it's airing on like unethical behavior because it's your chart and your diagnosis. And you wouldn't go to a regular physician and not have them say, Oh, you have strep throat. That's what you got. Here's your antibiotics. You know, you, they wouldn't just give you pills. They're like, Oh, okay. Take these by. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Wait, wait, anybody, right. That wouldn't be how that works. And I don't think that the mental health field should be any different. So always ask, but I don't really know why they do that because I always talk with my patients about it. I always, I've even asked patients sometimes because I've had a few patients in over the years, and I'm sure other clinicians can attest to this too, who are super private or work in a, in a space that is, can be judgmental about mental illnesses. And so I'll let them know like, Hey, you know, in order for your insurance to cover, I have to give them a proper diagnosis or would you rather pay cash? I've had patients pay cash so that nothing's on their record. So, I understand, you know, I always talk to people because I don't want to just put something down that then you have to like find out later or live with potentially for the rest of your life being on your documents. Um, yeah. I don't know why they do it. I, I don't have an answer because it doesn't, it legitimately doesn't make any sense to me. I always talk to my patients. I always ask them what their thoughts are. I, I even bring the DSM. So off my uh, bookshelf sometimes and read through the criteria and be like, do you feel like that is what you're experiencing? Sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. We talk about it. I've had patients disagree with me. We talk about it. Um, I've referred them to some of my old videos sometimes or, you know, um, have them read up on it and then let me know what they think it is or what they say yes to and what they say no to. Diagnosing is a big deal, I think. And I, I feel like it needs to be properly done and we need to take our time with it and yeah. I'm sorry. I honestly don't know why they wouldn't tell you and I hate that you had to find out by getting that app. Although at least things are coming online like that now. I've heard from a lot of people, even my mom. She's like, "Oh, everything's in the in not the vault. I forget what she calls it, but it's like all in the portal." That's the word, in the portal. And so now everything's in an app and you can see. She's like, "I can see where my blood work went and oh, I got my result." That's awesome. Maybe this will stop people from not knowing what they're diagnosed. So anybody out there, if you're seeing a therapist and you've been seeing them for a little while, I encourage you at your next session, be like, hey, have you given me any diagnosis? What do you think it is that I'm dealing with? I've never really asked. And, you know, you can even say, like, I listened to this lady online who's a therapist and somebody asked a question saying they never told them that they diagnosed them with gender dysphoria. So I wanted to check because we have a right to know. And I always tell my patients I've never I've never had it be a secret Um because I just, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. Even when I knew, like I've had some patients who were super upset with like a BPD diagnosis, for instance, a borderline personality disorder, or even a patient who's super upset about a diagnosis that he came in with, which was bipolar disorder. He didn't agree. We talked about it. Um, I, actually pushed my bipolar patient off to watch a video of mine to see if that felt real or not. Um, Read through some of the symptoms. Turns out he agreed after a while. Yes, it was that he just didn't like the stigma of it, which we talked about. That was its own thing. Same with my BPD patient. She agreed, but it was the stigma. And so even when it's uncomfortable and those are uncomfortable conversations, I've always had those. And I wish I had a good answer for you, but I don't know why. What we, I guess we have to be a little bit more active and advocate for ourselves so we can get the answers early on so that we don't, you're like, I've never had a problem with that. So I don't know what the fuck that's about. I would, I hope that we can get to a place where that doesn't happen. (laughs) So yeah, sorry that I don't have a better answer, but we just have to advocate, I guess. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for watching. And if you can share this podcast, that's really, really helps. Um, the more people we can assist and the more people that can view and download the, the better off we will be. Um, my new book is coming out. I'm going to do a formal, uh, like I said earlier, I'll do a formal announcement soon, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. You can just look up Katie Morton traumatized and order yours. It'll come out September 7th in the States. And I believe my publisher on a call we just had last week, they were telling me that the the uk and other parts of the world won't get it till like i think it's like two or three weeks after it comes out in the states so i i believe the dead the the date of release in the uk was like september 20 something so just know that if you don't get it on the seventh like other people in the states are that yours is on its way what happens is they release it here then they ship it over and that just takes a little while and then they disperse it from there it's like a, a I don't know. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry. I wish it could all be like dropped. Boom. Well, if you do the audiobook or something, then we can do that. And I haven't recorded the audiobook yet, but I will be soon. That's actually a very fun part of the book writing process. Um, But, anyways, so it'll be me. It'll be my voice. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Make sure to do at least a little check in. How am I feeling? What's happening in my body? Am I taking care of myself? Have I drank enough water? Have I eaten in the last three to four hours? Check in. See how you're doing. And I will see you on, well, Saturday with Sean and I's Baker, podcast, Opinions That Don't Matter, and Monday with another video. Have a wonderful week. You see you next time. Bye. Why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.